I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Jimmy Chen founded Propel in 2014 with the ambitious vision of improving America's safety net. $65 billion of government benefits go unclaimed every year because of cumbersome and opaque processes. Even when those benefits are claimed, the user experience is often frustrating. Propel started by making one of America's most important social benefit programs, SNAPs, formerly known as food stamps, more user-friendly. Propel makes it possible for any of the 42 million Americans on SNAPs to check their balance from their phone instead of having to call a 1-800 number and wade through a cumbersome phone tree. Today, Propel serves over 5 million people in all 50 states. And to share how Propel's vision has expanded beyond SNAPs to become an all-in-one money app that includes mobile banking and benefits info with the goal of patching America's broken safety net, I'm excited to have Jimmy Chen here to share his story. Jimmy, welcome to the program. It's really great to have you here with us. Hey, Rex. Thanks so much for having me. And I want to start at the very beginning. What was the path that led you to starting Propel in 2014? So even before 2014, I grew up as a kid in a loving family that just never had enough money. I went to college on a financial needs scholarship and learned how to code and landed in the tech industry in a time when social media was kind of taken off and being a software engineer and a product manager was a cool thing to do. But one of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about in tech is that people generally solve the problems that they understand. And especially in consumer software, the types of problems that consumer tech tends to take on are the problems that are commonly faced by software founders, which from a demographic standpoint, isn't necessarily representative of all Americans. In particular, there are not a lot of people who struggle financially, who have the means and have the resources to start a technology company that solves the problems that they themselves understand firsthand. In 2014, I left my job at Facebook to do a fellowship program at a nonprofit called Blue Ridge Labs based in New York City. And the premise of the program is really simple. It's just to help tech entrepreneurs learn more about the challenges faced by low-income families through user research. And user research is really just a fancy term for just talking to people. So I spent a summer of 2014 just talking to people about their lives, about their finances, but also about their education and their healthcare and their technology and their housing and all the different aspects of life. And it was through a lot of those conversations that I spent a bunch of time learning about the safety net, about how the government-funded safety net is almost by definition a part of daily life that is not experienced by middle to high-income people, but that is incredibly critical for low-income families. And so started just learning more about the experience of things like applying for food stamp benefits or using those benefits. And I learned that the food stamp program, which is officially known as SNAP, is used by about 40 million Americans each month that SNAP benefits are distributed on EBT cards, which are these debit cards that state governments issue, and that in talking to people who use their SNAP benefits on EBT cards, they would tell me that generally they would call the phone number on the back of the EBT card before they went shopping because they needed to know what their balance was. And so that just struck me as, you know, we don't generally ask consumers in fintech to have to call a 1-800 number to check their balance, that in this day and age, people generally have smartphone apps to be able to see what their balances are across banking products and fintech products and so on. It's not rocket science. That's just kind of a core consumer expectation. But that expectation was being violated when it came to government benefits, even government benefits that sort of mimicked a financial product. Like this is a payment card that looks just like any other card that you would swipe at point of sale. And so it just seemed odd to me that it didn't have the soft and it didn't have the user experience layer that you would expect in a lot of other financial services. For those 40 million Americans, it might not seem that crazy 
to like need to be able to check your balance. But if you're trying to buy a week's worth of groceries and wait in line and you don't know if you have like the right exact dollar amount, it's very stressful. Yeah, it's one of the things that we've learned over the years that actually there's a maximum of the less money you have, the more often you need to check it. That, you know, maybe the average American consumer, people don't need to check their checking account balances, their saving account balances very often. And so like you can build businesses based on the idea of like how often people are going to check their balances across a bunch of different types of financial products. But when you look at the behaviors of low-income families, people who are often operating with balances in the hundreds or tens of dollars, people who often each month are arriving at $0 left in their checking account, the needs there are just fundamentally pretty different. And so a lot of our exploration and product has been about building something from the ground up that is considerate of a use case of someone spending down their benefits or their cash down to zero each month and navigating this kind of monthly cycle. Yeah. And so you moved from Silicon Valley, having worked in product at LinkedIn and at Facebook, to then this nonprofit foundation across the country in New York. You discover this problem, start to understand it better. What sets in chain the motion to actually build a company? And while it wasn't necessarily a straightforward path, what we eventually landed on is this idea of a financial services company focused on the lowest income Americans that helps them navigate all the twists and turns of their financial month, that includes government benefits, but also money, is a major market opportunity. It is a company that can use the best of fintech and leverage the best of the public sector to create an experience that's just fundamentally different for really low-income Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, it took a little while to decide on the model behind the company, but also discover what the first product would be and who the first customers were. And there were some pivots along the way. Would love to walk through what that early journey looked like, some of the changes you made to the business plan, to the product, and then how that culminated in eventually launching your very first product. So when I started Propel in 2014, we were actually focused on an adjacent problem around the safety net, which is how do we help people apply for food stamp benefits? It's an attractive problem to an outsider because it's like nicely packaged. It just seems like the kind of thing you could try to improve, right? There's a government website, there's a government form, it kind of sucks, let's make it better. After about a year and a half of working on it, realized that it wasn't really a scalable business. There are ways to make revenue, but they're largely involving deep integrations with the public sector. A bunch of the challenges around usability there just aren't easy to solve from a consumer standpoint. In 2015, we started spending time not just working on enrollment and benefits, but thinking about what happens after you enroll. That actually, if you look at the macro stats, about 85% of Americans who qualify for the food stamp program are currently signed up. And although it's a noble effort to enroll the remaining 15%, the reality is the vast majority of people are already enrolled in the benefit and just trying to figure out how to spend it. So that led us to, in 2015, just talk to a lot of people with EBT cards trying to spend their government benefits. And we started getting into some of these more maybe mundane sounding details around how do you check your balance? How do you do a split tender transaction? How does a card itself actually work from a rails and payment perspective? And where is there an opportunity for a private company that's not a government contractor? It is not part of your state government, so not in the kind of flow of funds around how your state's distributing these benefits, at least not at the start. How do we play a role that is pro-consumer that also allows us to create a business? Yep, totally. And so you start with that very first product, which is allowing a view into the balance. What was it like to build that, the underlying infrastructure? And then what was the reception when you actually started getting it into the hands of consumers? When we had the idea to build a free mobile app 
though they would let people check their EBT balances on their phones, something like Mint or Credit Karma, but focused on EBT balances. We excitedly asked something like 10 people if they wanted to use an app like that and expected everyone to be super enthusiastic about it. But actually seven of the 10 people said no. And they told us that, you know, that that sounds nice, but like, I don't really need that. I called this 1-800 number to check my balance. I'm used to it. I've memorized the 1-800 number. I know the series of prompts that it's going to ask me and like type in my card number. Like, I don't need a new mobile app. And so we were a little bit discouraged, but ultimately decided to build it anyway because of a belief that at the end of the day, like if we made something that was a new, better version of something that people were used to, people would really vote with their feet. And that would be better than just what people said that they would use or not use. And so we ended up launching the first version of Fresh EBT in early 2016 and found actually the reaction to it to be immediately really positive, that people were using the app frequently, they were sharing it to their family and friends, and it seemed like it solved the problem that a lot of people had, that every single person with an EBT card would prefer to have a free app to check what their balance was, as opposed to spending a bunch of time calling this 1-800 number. And so the implementation path from there was tricky. The way the app worked on the back end is that we are essentially a financial services aggregator, not too dissimilar from Plaid or from a bunch of others in the space, where we are getting consumer consent to access their EBT information on their behalf and then showing it to them inside the app. The challenge there for us is that EBT is a state-by-state program. And so we had to build... Yep essentially 50 different state integrations in order to get the app live across the country. And for distribution and growth reasons, we really wanted to get it live across the country as quickly as we could. So 2016 for Propel was really about that journey of, we're going to launch this in all 50 states and get it done as fast as we can. So that was a fun year. Yeah. Was that usually over web-based platforms or all through mobile like telephony and actually having to key in digits on behalf of users to start? It's almost all through mobile. And today there's a broad range. Some states are closer to APIs. Some states are you know, using all sorts of different types of methods. And those things have evolved over the years that we've been in this space. But there still is a lot of cruft there and a lot of difficulty. And we are a major customer of Twilio because we place phone calls on behalf of the consumer. We transcribe their balance and we display that to them inside the app. That's actually still a value add, even though it's not ideal for the consumer because it's way better than them having to place the call themselves. And as you did the state-by-state rollout, curious how long it took you to get to meaningful penetration of those 40 million Snap users, despite the fact (laughs) a lot of them, or at least the early folks you interviewed said, oh, I, I won't be using an app like this. Growth was pretty quick. And this was in a time in the company where we had never had any institutional funding. It was me and a small group of people sitting in free office space from the nonprofit fellowship program that we were in. Like, I didn't have health insurance. I didn't pay myself a salary. Like, this is, yep. this is pretty scrappy times for us as a company. But we pretty quickly got to the six figures of monthly active users on the app. And it was really a lot of organic growth, a lot of kind of viral word of mouth stuff from people telling each other, hey, there's this like new app out there that solves this little annoyance that you had about checking what your EBT balance was. The thing that we were most excited about from that was not just the pure user growth, but the opportunity that it really afforded us. Because we knew from the start that just solving the EBT balance checking problem was never going to be the end-all be-all for us at Propel. That we were much more excited about solving bigger problems around poverty and financial life for low-income families and really saw this EBT balance checking thing as an acquisition hook, right? As a wedge to get 
a trusted relationship to millions of low-income families who otherwise don't have a lot of trusted relationships of apps on their phone, especially not in financial services, and to use that as an opportunity to help folks navigate the different stressors and challenges that we know that they face in their financial lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's basically a way of aggregating a very similar audience. And then once you have them think about other products you can build over time. We had Ken Lin on the podcast earlier and he talked about how providing visibility into your credit score, not something that necessarily a lot of high credit Americans think about, but very important for other folks. Also early on, you know, he wasn't able really to, to monetize his users to any extent. He was earning like one or $2 per user, but he, he aggregated a really great engaged group of folks based around access to this really important piece of information, similar to what you were doing with Propel. So you get the first real product to market, you get a lot of organic growth. Then from that, you actually are able to go out and I believe raise your first seed round. So I'm curious to hear what the story looked like and the pitch you made to investors about Propel at that time. I'll be honest with you, Rex, at that stage in the company, I was still unsure whether we were going to be able to really raise institutional capital for Propel, primarily because we were just in such a weird space. Yeah. We were building a free government benefits management app for people on food stamps. And there just wasn't a lot of industry comps for companies that had successfully made it to unicorn status or achieved great outcomes building for such a low income consumer and building, you know, that kind of software. And so we were certainly not the like overnight success founded the company and VCs just threw money at us. The thing that I think changed and that changed our trajectory was just the consumer acceptance and excitement about the product. We ended up in a position where we'd taken a little bit of angel money and had gotten a convertible note from a nonprofit, but we had never raised institutional funding before. And here we were, we were a company with 200,000 monthly active users in financial services. And that, I think, gave us a lot of credibility as we went into rooms and started talking about the future of what we could build. And this kind of compounding nature of we're going to have a web feature, and then we're going to onboard people into these greater you know, lifetime value, more interesting, more differentiated features is something that has worked across a bunch of different financial services companies. And so I think we had a pretty credible story to tell on that front. And indeed, is what we've done in the years since. Honestly, Rex, a big part of it for us was finding investors who deeply understood this domain, which is a weird domain and that most people mm -hmm. don't have either personal experience or like professional experience with this slice of consumers, the domain of government payments and government benefits. It's a weird corner of fintech that not a lot of people have deep subject matter familiarity with. So I was lucky to run into Andreessen Horowitz and to Alex Rampell, who's the general partner there who sat on our board for a large number of years, who actually had built a business, trial pay that was at least adjacent to some of the challenges that we were talking about, where Alex really deeply understood the economics and understood sort of the consumer behaviors that we were experiencing at, at Propel. And so that, I think, was a major accelerant for us. And I think... One way I like to frame the fundraising process, it's not necessarily about convincing investors. A lot of founders may think they have to try and convince investors of certain things, but it's just as important to go out and try and find the right people who already believe in the same things you do. So at that time, you have a good audience, you know, good engagement, but you haven't necessarily decided exactly what shape the business model is going to take or not at least not really leaned in to figure out what monetization looks like. So I'd love to talk to you what that did look like to actually build a business to earn revenue while still serving this segment, which to your point, doesn't have a lot of money. 
let me like tee up some of the challenges first before I talk about sort of where, yeah. where we landed and how it's gone over the last few years. If you could intellectualize this market and this business and talk about those constraints, the type of business we're trying to build, it's not entirely obvious that there is a business to be built there, a much less a venture scale one, right? And then I think a lot of others had looked at the space, at least from the outside. That is an impossible intersection of too many Venn diagrams. And there's mm-hmm. not a way that you can really build a for-profit scalable business that meets all of those constraints. But being naive and always believing that there is a way to do it, we decided to give it a try. The original business model of Propel and the one that we actually still operate and is still the majority of our business today is a business that we call Marketplace. You know, you mentioned Credit Karma and Ken Lin. We took a lot of inspiration from how they built their business and how they thought about serving their users in a way that was not just display ads, but there was actually value inside of the application. So the business model for Credit Karma, to just kind of oversimplify it to me, is you know they show you your credit score and then they use that opportunity to introduce you to a bunch of offers of things you might qualify for because of your credit profile. For us, the analogy is we show you your EBT balance and your bank balance. We show you how much money you've got. And then we show you things that you might qualify for as a result of your socioeconomic status. And those are things that help you improve your financial health. Those are things that help you save money across categories like grocery, telecoms, insurance, and so on. And they're also things that help you make money, like jobs, whether it's gig or full-time or part-time jobs. And so that business model is one that we still operate at scale today. We are one of the largest online channels to be able to reach low-income consumers in a trusted format. We work with companies across a bunch of different sectors, but that are all focused on helping our users to either save money or make more money. All of the content inside of our app is heavily vetted and positioned in such a way that users exactly understand what benefit they might receive from engaging in this type of offer, and that is organized in such a way that helps people be really clear about the different pools of costs that they might be dealing with in their financial lives and how this app could help to guide them through those challenges. Absolutely. And that's a great opportunity to find work, to found money that might be provisioned through other government benefits to help private companies like groceries extend very targeted savings to consumers. So we were operating this marketplace business, operating the EBT balance app, getting to scale, having some nice kind of success on that. And then the pandemic happened. And as was widely publicized, families that were already financially vulnerable, already working hourly jobs in the service economy, really struggled in 2020. And the government response was to issue stimulus checks. The way that those actually worked on a mechanical basis is that the IRS sent direct deposits to the last place you filed your taxes. And the public IRS stat was something like 90% of households received that direct deposit without any issue. But when we spoke to our users about their experience, we found that actually about 45% of our users did not receive stimulus checks via direct deposit. They instead got those via paper checks in the mail. And it's because for our demographic, that's a really visceral representation of the fact that our users are less attached to their banking products. They're more transitory. They go through multiple bank accounts each year. They oftentimes don't file their taxes or because they're under the kind of income threshold that requires them to file taxes. And so that challenge of having a permanent payment address to be able to receive payments was one that came into really stark focus for us in 2020. And so in response, we decided to, in some ways, pivot the business from a GovTech company that was helping people understand their government benefits and then do kind of lead gen on top of that 
into a company that was doing all those things, but that was also really embracing kind of the fintech component of becoming actually the banking provider for our users by offering essentially a consumer neobank inside of this government benefits app to help low-income families, the majority of which are dealing with challenges that are, are maybe challenging for the financial services industry to tackle a consistent payment address and bank account that they could use to conduct other day-to-day finances. And this is a big move for you as a business, right? To go from being basically a lens into financial services to actually a provider of financial services, a provider of a bank account. What did it look like to actually build that, launch it, get the infrastructure together? Yeah, we had a front row seat to the evolution of the banking as a service sector as an early customer of some, as a kind of a mid-stage customer of others, as we tried to stand up our program. You know, when we were first getting into it, a lot of the services were just not mature and just not there. And so we, we had to build a bunch of things in-house. We were looking deep into like how DPS worked and whether we were going to have to like build a bunch of different components of our ledger in-house and all these different types of things because a lot of the solutions that are out there today weren't there in 2020. That said, we were fortunate to also ride on a lot of these rails that as the fintech industry has made a lot of these services cheaper and more accessible for companies like us, you know, companies that are not fundamentally built on top of new fintech infrastructure innovation that sort of has historically not been our sweet spot, to use the fact that our sweet spot has been understanding and trust and relationship to a lot of consumers and to layer these financial infrastructure pieces to make it possible. I think the other piece of it for us has always been the economics of it, right? That like, if offering a checking account with your brand on it to consumers is incredibly expensive because from a technical standpoint, from a cost basis standpoint, then it's going to continue to be inaccessible to low-income consumers or to be expensive to those consumers with fees that, that have to be passed on to them. And I think one of the things we've seen in timing of the market is that now more than ever before, it is possible to offer these products at a really low cost basis to low-income consumers and thus make it really accessible, make it possible to fund these through the interchange system, through kind of a business model that is not extractive and that actually aligns a lot of interest between consumers and platforms. That's a big shift. Instead of just being able to find value, you now have a place to actually receive value within the app and then you know store your balances, et cetera. And I think it's a great jumping off point to talk about the interesting kinds of things that unlock. So like in 2021, because you now have a place to receive value inside of Propel, you were able to help administer the largest cash grant program in American history. So I think that'd be a great example to talk through. And then we could also talk through how, you know, something like that, which is more of a a one-off program, actually leads you to a lot of what the future Propel looks like in terms of trying to find value for consumers. Yeah. So in 2020, the Give Directly team reached out to us. Give Directly is a 501c3 nonprofit that does cash transfer programs around the world. And In the early days of the pandemic, when it became really clear that there was going to be a government-funded response, but that response was going to take months, and that a lot of consumers, especially low-income consumers, were feeling that pain right away, we decided to build a partnership that would take charitably-funded contributions through the GiveDirectly platform onto the Propel platform to distribute to our users. That our role as Propel in this case is that 100% of our users are already pre-vetted as being low income and that they're already using the food stamp program and that we've built this mechanism by which to distribute money to consumers. And so we were able to leverage some of those tools in 2020 and 2021 to take the generosity of donors across the country, whether those are individuals or foundations and organizations, and turn that into $1,000 cash grants with no strings attached, no payback needed, really no kind of sign up or credit process needed to be able to help 
200,000 people get about $200 million in these payments. And we were proud to be able to say that we believe this is the largest non-government cash transfer program in American history to be able to get that amount of money to that amount of consumers quickly. And so I think that taught us a lot about the power of the Propel platform, that when there are reasons that people need to identify and reach low-income consumers, that we've got this scaled, trusted way to be able to do that. And although the early days of the pandemic were a pretty singular time, we hope that things like that don't have to happen again, there is actually a consistent need for payments to reach low-income consumers. Because oftentimes people want to send money, but they actually don't have a vehicle or means to do it digitally in, say, you know, less than a week, which... I think is what you're going to talk about when you have natural disasters, when you have pandemics, when you have other sorts of issues, you you actually need these rails to get things out very quickly. Yeah, totally. There's kind of two categories here. There are these one-off situations like natural disasters where we can essentially apply the give directly model once again of direct payments to consumers and being the distribution platform. And then there are ongoing things that are not one-off that actually are more of the recurring payment use cases that are often around the safety net or around public funding that are also incredibly important. And through this experience, we've kind of learned that we have a really powerful asset for that. So first on the one-off cases, the best example of this is the Give Directly partnership has kind of evolved to be one where we're actually trying to stand up quick programs in response to external emergencies. An example of this was hurricane season last year, where a lot of people lost power in the state of Florida and in Puerto Rico. And we were able to distribute about $3 million in partnership with the Give Directly team and Google through that program that, again, was looking for people who were using the provider's app who are already identified as being low income and who had a debit card through us that we can make that payment directly onto their debit cards in essentially 48 hours to help people to recover from those natural disasters faster. On the other side, on the recurring side, we've spent a lot of time talking to our users about for people who receive government-funded cash benefits, things like the disability program or the unemployment program or child support, how do we think about like the banking solutions that they have and where those benefits are being distributed and deposited and where are their pain points around understanding what amount that they're going to receive and the speed at which they receive it and how they can transact with it and how many fees they're paying on it. These are all kind of traditional financial services questions, but overlaid on top of these public sector programs that often have a complex set of rules that are administered by the state or federal government. And so we've realized that actually having a consistent payment location for anyone who uses government benefits means that actually we can create a better deposit mechanism for a lot of people who are getting these government cash benefits too. And so that's an angle in which our program is actually pretty distinct and pretty different from a lot of others in fintech or especially other neobanks that are thinking about kind of a different subset of consumers that for us, a lot of our product focus and a lot of our differentiation is thinking through how do we make it the best card for you to get a government benefit direct deposit on? Yeah, absolutely. And some of those one-time things are super interesting, not just for the dollars distributed, you know, 200 million via give directly, a few million for hurricane relief, but they can also inform public policy work as to the efficacy of those programs versus other traditional forms of relief. And I think the University of Michigan is still working through the data to assess the extent to which you could compare this to other forms of non-cash transfers. And hopefully that'll make us more effective as policymakers (laughs) uh, in terms of supporting people who are impacted by by events. But then there's also the kind of more private 
opportunities to distribute cash or do partnerships, especially with other fintechs. So I know now one of the big focuses for Propel and for providers is to focus on dollar in pockets. And so I'm curious to hear some of the partnerships you've been able to do with other fintechs in the space. Yeah, if the first eight or so years of Propel were about building foundations, building infrastructure, building the financial product that allows us to distribute money to our users, the next eight years at Propel are going to be about using that infrastructure in order to put more dollars into our users' pockets. Just a really simple and visceral way to talk about what we think is going to be the killer features inside of this app and allow it to continue to scale, allow our business to continue to succeed. That our users are people that are struggling with poverty, and poverty is simply defined as a lack of money. And so it naturally follows that the best way to help people that are struggling with a lack of money is to give them more money. Of course, finding an economical way to give people more money sustainably, scalably, through a for-profit solution, that's really hard. And so that's a lot of where our time and energy and product development cycles are going now, is to measure and find how many ways we can put dollars into our users' pockets through whatever means we have necessary, right? So the Give Directly partnership is a great example of like a very direct way that we can do that. Another one is we know that for a lot of low-income families, tax time is a major opportunity to put dollars in your pocket. And that's through things like the Earn Income Tax Credit or the Child Tax Credit. But that tax filing rates for low-income families tend to be pretty low. Low-income families tend to be more likely to use paid or predatory tax prep services. And that distribution, you know, being able to reach low-income people as they're thinking about their taxes and understanding what they need to do has been a fundamental challenge in the industry for many, many years. And so just a few months ago, we launched a partnership with Column Tax where we helped our users to prepare their taxes within the provider's app. So due to Column's great infrastructure, we were able to build essentially a native tax filing experience inside of the provider's app and capitalize on the trust that we've built up to our user base and helped a lot of our users file their taxes. We ultimately generated about $50 million in tax refunds that were able to go onto the provider's card and help our users to make ends meet each month. And that's an example of the kind of thing that we're really proud of. One of the stats that, that actually surprised us a little bit during that exercise is we found that of the people who filed their taxes through us in 2023, there were 40% of those folks hadn't filed their taxes in prior years. And so this is a population for whom being able to reach with a fast, low-cost tax prep service actually made a pretty big amount of difference in their ability to get these valuable refunds. Absolutely. And the earned income tax credit applies to about 28 million families a year. It's up to $4,000 a year. It's helped move 10 million individuals on an annual basis above the poverty line. But to your point, potentially millions of folks just aren't filing taxes who would technically qualify. And having these low friction ways, a place to receive value quickly, a way to file taxes quickly and easily makes a huge difference. I'd love to hear a little bit about the future, what you see as kind of the next steps for Propel. I feel like we've talked about that already. It's really this focus on dollar and pockets, but I'm curious if there are other things there, other products you're excited about, other specific partnerships, or just other interesting evolutions the company has had recently. When I think about the future of Propel, I think about this phrase that we hear from our users all the time, which is that the point of Propel, providers, government benefits, money, bank accounts, financial services, all this stuff, all of it kind of rolls up for our users into this idea of making it through the month. That's the cadence that people think about their financial lives on. So it causes a lot of stress is, am I going to be able to make it through the month and effectively provide for my family? And we have decided to align what we do as Propel and what our ambitions are at Propel is helping every American make it through the month every month. 
And that that means that for us to achieve that, we need to get deep into the details of what it means to make it through the month, which requires us to look into and understand things like how are people thinking about their housing and the rent? How are people thinking about their utilities and their bills? How are people thinking about their income and their jobs and their paychecks and all these different types of things? Some of them will be financial services questions or things that the fintech industry traditionally works on. Some will not be, right? We're also spending a lot of time these days talking to Medicaid insurers and thinking about how healthcare payments play a role in people's financial lives and their ability to make it through the month. But a lot of what we're trying to create at Propel is a one-stop shop for low-income families to reduce their financial stress by maximizing their likelihood of making it through the month. And that's going to require us to build this kind of deeply trusted horizontal platform that gives people the right options with each of these different types of transactions and that is able to show true results that are measured in the form of dollars and pockets for helping people actually make it through the month. So that is a big challenge. It's not something that we are going to achieve either this year or next year. It's a 10, 20 year challenge for us, but it's one that we're really excited about. It's one where we believe if we can achieve the results on the scale that we hope to, that there's an incredible business opportunity, but perhaps more importantly, an incredible social impact opportunity for what it means to be poor in this country. I look forward to continuing to follow the work you guys have been doing. The final question I want to ask is when we ask of all of our founders, which is what advice would you give for other founders, folks who are thinking about going off and starting something new, especially if they're building for not necessarily your demographic, but for a non-traditional demographic that investors or other folks in the ecosystem aren't used to thinking about? The first advice that I give founders is usually to think about who they're building for, especially if they're in a consumer software kind of business, to just really carefully consider what consumer segment or demographic you are trying to reach, and to consider to what extent you personally understand those challenges. To consider to what extent you may be miscalibrated because your worldview, the people that you hang out with, the people that you went to school with or that you work with may or may not be representative of the people that you're trying to serve in fintech. And if that's the case, to be just really self-aware about the shortcomings or the misunderstandings or the the miscalibrations you may have about the consumers you're trying to serve, I mean, to put in the work to like build up that understanding. It's not rocket science, it's just talking to people. But having those conversations and building up that understanding of that intuition is just incredibly important. On the other side, when it comes to either raising capital or as an investor choosing what companies to invest in. My perspective on this is exactly what you said earlier on this call, Rex, that I think it's pretty difficult to convince people to believe an opportunity exists when they don't already have some inclination to believe that. And so as a founder building in what may be in a space that people are unsure is investable or not, the way that I approached that challenge was very much trying to find people who already had some insight into this space, who I didn't have to convince that there was a business opportunity to build financial software for low-income families, people who already sort of understood that there was a market opportunity to do that without sacrificing the mission of the organization, and that those are the folks who are likely to be your true believers. It can be difficult to find those folks, especially if you're in a niche where not everyone in fintech or not everyone in VC understands the challenges and the business opportunity in this domain. But when you do find the people who have that understanding and that knowledge, it's really magic. I think that's exactly what Ken Lin said when he was raising the Series A for Credit Karma. He flew out to Sand Hill Road, talked to around 200 VCs, got a whole bunch of no's. Then he met the QED team who had built Capital One, which serves a lot of lower credit Americans, and they fundamentally understood 
why credit was important for their demographic and that obviously Credit Karma has been super successful. So thanks so much for coming on, Jimmy. This has been an awesome conversation. You're doing a bunch of really interesting work and I look forward to continuing to follow all the progress in the years to come. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me to hear Jimmy Chen's story of building Propel. And if you'd like to hear more content like this, feel free to hit like and subscribe. Thanks and catch you next time.